let us now give attention to the public reading and hearing of God's uh, holy word uh, in the gospel according to Matthew chapter 21 verses 33 to 46. So I invite your reverent attention uh, that we might hear in faith the words of the living God. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes... What will he do to those tenants? And they said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. And Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. One of the uh, blessings, I say this advisedly, of uh, contemporary government is uh, the exercise that it gives to us uh, on workplace uh, safety. I know that's not a subject you came to hear about this morning, but uh, it is a wonderful reminder that sometimes there are blessings from government and uh, more importantly, and perhaps even critically, uh, great blessings of uh, the modern marketplace to bring to us a myriad of devices uh, that we can use in our places of work to keep us safe. Well, the same is an eternal principle as well. Uh, what, or perhaps better yet, who can keep us safe uh, in the wilds of which uh, we live in the modern day world? We are reminded from scripture that in Christ there is safety and outside of him no one is safe. Uh, this reality is captured for us this morning in two controlling metaphors of our text, uh, that of a vine and of a stone. Uh, I know that in contemporary English, uh, you flunk the course if you mix metaphors in writing, but again, this is not an English class. Uh, the writers of Scripture uh, don't uh, obey those conventions, but they bring to us, again, this powerful message of eternal safety in these two controlling metaphors, and each metaphor uh, 
is like a coin. It has an obverse side and a reverse side. One of the sides uh, speaks to terrible cursing of those who are unsafe because they are outside of Christ, and then, if you will, the reverse, that there is safety only in Christ. Again, the two metaphors uh, control these thoughts. Our text is anatomy of rejection in the form of a parable and framed around four Old Testament texts. Uh, The latter, to me, is quite ironic because Israel in the days of Jesus were to be the keepers of Scripture. And they were to understand that all of the scriptures were to point to the majesty of God. And now the word of God and the majesty of God and the Lord Jesus is in their midst, but they know not of him upon whom they are looking, because really they know not scripture. But it is a reminder to all of us as contemporary Christians that there ought to be a decisive love of the word of God, and really a love of him of whom the scriptures speak, namely Christ. Let's begin to look at the first metaphor, uh, the vine. Uh, The nation in verses 33 to 41 is told by Christ that it is an unfruitful vineyard. The parable hints at God as the landowner, Israel as the vineyard, the servants who come to collect rent are the prophets, the son who comes to gain to secure an accounting is, of course, the Lord Jesus. Uh, More importantly, the parable is an allusion uh, to Isaiah chapter 5 and verses 1 to 7. If you have your Old Testament, I trust you do. I invite you to turn there uh, because this is one of the controlling Old Testament texts that speaks uh, of the reality of uh, the vineyard. Uh, Contextually, Isaiah chapter 5 is known as the song of the vineyard. It is called such in the first verse of the fifth chapter. Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. Uh, Much of American culture is given to music, and so we are given this morning to the song of the vineyard. It is a song about God's care in providing for his people. We will look at verse 2. And he dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. God providing, of course, for his people. A great application here uh, reminds us of accountability and responsibility. Because when God provides, even in his sovereign grace when he provides, he expects a measure of fruitfulness. Because that is what sovereign grace, of course, works. Tragedy of tragedies in this uh, uh, song, the vineyard produces worthless grapes, verse 4. I expected it to produce good grapes. It produced worthless uh, ones. Reminded uh, occasionally I go to the store and the grapes look good. Buy the grapes, you take your chances, don't you? You get them home and what you thought was firm and choice and succulent is all mushy and old and really worthy to be thrown out. In a measure, that is what happens. God shows up and he expects something. He's given uh, something that's contrary to his expectation. And so, in verse 6, God lays it waste and withdraws his blessing. And I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up, and I will also charge the clouds to rain no rain upon it. So the presence of God is withdrawn from the nation. It came. It does a great work. It has divine expectation. 
The expectations are not met, so God leaves. Now, what is really remarkable about uh, the Song of the Vineyard is that it is a prelude to the call and commissioning of the prophet in Isaiah chapter 6, who is tasked to go affect spiritual ruin, the outcome of which is the Babylonian captivity. We know fully from the scriptures that the nations become idolatrous, so Isaiah is called to go make them like the idols that they serve. Idol ha idols have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. You want to be like an idol? Isaiah, go make it so. And that's what Isaiah does. And the nation is destroyed, and Babylon comes, and terrible judgment. Uh, by the way, the call and commission of the prophet Isaiah is reduplicated numerous times in the New Testament. Uh, the apostle John writes in the 12th chapter as to why so few among the nation believe. If you recall chapter 12 of the Gospel of John, you know that the previous chapter was, of course, 11, and the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. I mean, who could not behold that and not immediately believe upon the Lord Jesus as the Lord of all of life? But they don't believe. Why don't they believe? 12th chapter, we have the answer, twofold answer, because the arm of the Lord was not given to them. The divine power, so necessary for belief, was withdrawn from the nation. And then John cites uh, Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they turn and be healed. Uh, it's one of the most stirring acts of judgment in all the scriptures. Uh, we don't think of God in that way, but John does and John did. It's reduplicated again in uh, the book of Acts as to why... Uh, uh, Paul turns away from the Gentiles, pardon me, from uh, the nation of Israel to uh, the Gentiles. Because seeing they can't see and hearing they do not hear. And neither do they understand. And so Paul takes his message no longer to Israel, but to the Gentiles. But certainly by way of application for all of us, uh, there is the day of salvation to respond. Knowing that God doesn't have to hang around and keep inviting us. Someday he may do something terrible and awful and leave and never come back. Matthew has already cited uh, the call of the prophet as the reason he is teaching, Jesus is teaching in parables. Again, uh, we've looked at this text, but it's very decisive in its uh, ramifications upon the nation of Israel, contemporary in the days of Jesus, uh, Matthew chapter 13. Disciples asked him, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered and said to them, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while they seeing they do not see, and while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And then he cites Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. It wasn't granted them to know. I understand that that is not a very popular view of understanding of Jesus, that he's always hanging around to save, uh, always wishing that some would come to him and believe upon him. Perhaps there's a measure of that, but not in these texts at all. This decisive, biting, irrevocable, horrendous, catastrophic judgment in the ruin of the nation. What it means for us, of course, is that the judgment of the prophet Isaiah is now being fulfilled in Jesus, the greater Isaiah. He has come to his nation. They're producing bad fruit, and they do not believe upon him. So he affects terrible spiritual ruin, and soon it will get worse. Furthermore, the nation is rejected for rejecting the messenger of God. 
parable rouses us all to anger. I mean, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees hearing this parable, this great little story, pronounced judgment upon themselves. The tenant farmers kill the messengers, and then the son of the owner, and he shows up. And God sends a long line of prophets, or perhaps even ministers, or whatever the case might be, a Bible teacher to warn. In many respects, I think that's one of the lost arts in the American church today. We forget to warn, but the scriptures are filled with warnings, and this is one of them. A warning uh, to be urgent about uh, the presence of God and divine grace. Uh, captured for us again, the Old Testament reality by the prophet Jeremiah, 7th chapter, verses 25 to 26. Since the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt until this day, I have sent you all my servants, the prophets, daily rising early and sending them. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their necks, and they did evil more than all of their fathers. Again, Jeremiah, like Isaiah, is acknowledging the coming of Babylon to destroy the nation's captivity because they did not hear the warnings from the prophets. Reminder to the church as the confessional people of God to heed the warnings of the New Testament of the nature of God who is the Lord of the vineyard who someday will come and ask for an accounting. It's interesting the, uh, the stiffened neck metaphor is perhaps an allusion to the book of Exodus where the nation uh, engaged in idolatry. They worship a golden calf that has a stiff neck as if God in ironic judgment is saying, oh, you want to you want to be hardened? You want to have a stiff neck? You worship a calf, a golden calf? I'll make you just like the God that you have worshipped. And so they become insensitive to the word of the Lord. As you know, the first generation perishes in the wilderness. It's a reminder that idolatry is transformational. We don't think in those terms today. But we ought to and we need to. Pardon if I've told this story to you already, but I went to a wedding last night and uh, a gentleman uh, stood up to, uh, to read uh, a measure of blessing upon uh, those that were assembled, especially the wedding party. And then he said something that struck me as uh, quite troublesome, that you worship uh, God however you define him. That, my friend, is a beautiful expression of idolatry. And people become like the gods that they serve. If you self-define God, you are in a bad way. Because only God is permitted to define himself, and that in Holy Scripture. That is where we turn to learn about the true God, the living God, and not an idol. So God sends his son, they reject him. It's a terminal event. Daniel chapter 9, verse 26 is a reminder that... Uh, they reject the son, so he will come and destroy the city and the sanctuary. Uh, we will learn at some point in the Gospel of Matthew that that is fulfilled in the coming of Titus and the Roman legions to utterly destroy uh, the temple. It's a sign that God is finished. In my own understanding, it's God is finished. Final judgments have come. So let's turn to the uh, reverse side of uh, this vine metaphor, the sign of blessing. It's difficult to deal with judgment. Sometimes our, it grates upon our ears. Sometimes maybe it runs afoul of what conception we may have about God. 
But the vine metaphor respecting Israel, of course, is a message of judgment. Let's look at the message as it speaks to safety, as it speaks to the true vine. It is our reminder that it is unsafe to be on any other vine than that provided by God in Jesus Christ. Old Testament reality that comes from the words of Moses as he is uh, speaking to the nation, uh, reminding them about who they are and about the care that they should exercise over their souls, that God will come for an accounting. Deuteronomy 32, in the 32nd verse, for their vine is from the vine of Sodom and from the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of poison, their clusters bitter. Most of you all know that springtime in Oklahoma, springtime in Oklahoma can be a time of uh, terrible storms. In great modern marketing, we provide great storm shelters. On my street, people come in, they tear up their driveways, tear up their garages, and put in a storm shelter. I suspect there's a lot of wisdom to that, because sometimes storms in Oklahoma can get quite violent utterly destroy a home and kill people. I will tell you there's only one true storm shelter in terms of eternity, and that is Christ. He's the only authorized vine for which there is safety. I am reminded of uh, modern American industry that provides such great accoutrements for workplace safety. Work boots that keep you from slipping, work boots that have steel toes, Harnesses so that if you have to crawl up on a ladder or on a scaffolding that keep you from falling. Christ is the only ultimate safety in eternity. Again, turning back to the Old Testament provision, uh, Moses, the same chapter for which I read earlier, the 32nd chapter of the book of Deuteronomy. It is a haunting text of the 35th verse. As I read it, perhaps some of you will know that this was uh, the text that uh, Jonathan Edwards used in his great sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And so the text reads, in due time, their foot will slip. Sometimes we go through life and we're full of ourselves and maybe we're the greatest skaters in the world, but in due time, the best of skaters will slip. The most skilled, the most practiced, the best of athletes drop the ball, and then God shows up at that time. It's a reminder to stay close and to abide close to Christ as the only authorized vine of safety. It is a concept that is found in one of my favorite psalms. It's called a pilgrim song because the pilgrims would leave their homes and go to Jerusalem on the great pilgrim feast to worship God. Of course, traveling to uh, the city to worship God uh, was an occasion for danger. Uh, perhaps uh, a violent storm would come and uh, make the road slippery, or perhaps there would be a highwayman, or perhaps some beast of prey, hungry, and they're the object. Well, the psalm, of course, is Psalm 121. I love at the third verse, for he will not allow your foot to sleep, pardon me, slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. 
that for the safety of the people of God, we have the providence of God, and God does not sleep. He does not tire out. From morning to evening, in all of the intervening time, God watches over his people to keep their foot from slipping so that they can end up in the great city where God localizes his presence in the temple. And they can engage in the unbounding joy and delight of worshiping the one true great God, born all the way by his marvelous wings of safety and provision. It is something I think of my favorite doxology found in the New Testament, Jude, one biting chapter that is filled with judgment that comes upon professing Christians. Everyone seeming is slipping away. And then the author repairs to the majesty of the divine provision. Now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling. And in one moment where danger is everywhere, now there is safety in but one. The provision of God who alone is able. That one of the marks of all of our lives in every waking moment of our life because of depravity and the fall of Adam, is that we are unable, but God enables us by the provision of his spirit. And that while we live in a slippery world, spiritually God keeps us from slipping away. He holds us, protects us, marks us. But the vineyard metaphor of which there is safety, again, captured for us, 15th chapter of the Gospel of John. We know the Reverse is uh, the reality that Israel, the nation of Israel, the physical Israel, was, uh, was not a choice vineyard. And so God starts again in his grace. John chapter 15 and verse 5, using this controlling metaphor of the vineyard. I am the vine. So the old vineyard has now been replaced by a new vine. Jesus is that vine. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Incredible in the grace of God. We come to Christ. We're placed upon the eternal vine and we bear fruit. And God is pleased with the fruit as if it's the work of his own hand. Theologians have a word for that. It's called grace. We can't, but he does. It's even more decisive in the 16th verse. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. Whatever you ask in the name of the Father's name, in my name, he may give to you. We struggle bearing fruit, but we can pray the prayer that God would fructify our lives and God will answer it because it's so committed in the name of Christ. I think it's a spiritual reality, but not the name it and claim it stuff. It's so prevalent in the American church today. But isn't it remarkable from this text, this controlling metaphor, the vineyard, that we have been elected to be a part of that vineyard? God chose us to be a part and that our fruit should remain. It's one of the greatest of all the promises of Scripture. This controlling metaphor, the vineyard, is cast for us in judgment, but then it turns a remarkable picture of the grace of God in Christ that placed in him will produce fruit and it won't grow bad. It won't grow stale. It won't 
grow soft and mushy. It will exist so that when the Lord of the vineyard comes, he is pleased. All because it's secured by the grace of God and divine election. That in all of our lives, we owe our fruitfulness that God chose us from eternity past. Were it not so, we would be like the Israel of old. I think one of the points of text, of which there are many, for Christians to drive us all the closer to hold fast to the vine. Because everything outside of that vine is unsafe and will be destroyed. That Christ is the new Israel. He has replaced the old vineyard. And outside of him you're not safe. I mentioned earlier that there is in the text of Matthew chapter 21 a mixing of metaphors. We shift now from the metaphor of the vineyard to that of the stone. The nation of Israel in the days of Jesus, again contemporary to Jesus, misses the reality of Christ as God's choice upon which to build his temple. Stated quite clearly, the 42nd verse, Matthew chapter 21. Did you never read in scripture the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. Uh, the text is a citation from Psalm 118. Now, the psalm is a thanksgiving psalm in which the author is praising God for divine deliverance. Deliverance because the author has been persecuted and he identifies himself with the cornerstone of the temple. It's probably a reference to the great king of Israel, David. And he gives us a reason for his praising of God, namely the Lord delivered him. And therefore his response is to go to the temple and to worship the God who delivered him. And there he proclaims the irony of his deliverance. Again, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. Contemporary to Jesus, the builders of the temple was Israel. It's an interesting construction metaphor. I don't know a great deal about construction, but I learned something in the building of the home uh, a few years back, uh, particularly masons. Uh, they go and they order a bunch of stone, but they don't use all the stone. They have to reject some of it. Don't ask me why. I, I, just, I just know that that's what they did. Uh, they were able to use the vast majority of it, but some of the stones they had to call set it aside to be thrown away. Not all of the stones that come from a quarry are acceptable. But it is often the way of God to use what men reject. Now, by the way, that is true of you as a Christian. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I know sometimes we get full of ourselves. We think we came to the gospel because we were smart, because we understood it, because we were able to read, only to learn from the scripture that a natural man does not understand the things of God, that God must give us his spirit so that we can read, we can know, we can apply, we can believe. Uh, one of the problems with the church of Corinth was spiritual pride. And so Paul says, for consider your call, brethren. There were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame those things which are strong. 
The psalm, of course, is used by Christ in Matthew chapter 21 is indirectly prophetic of him. It has an immediate fulfillment in David, but the ultimate fulfillment is Christ. He is the cornerstone. The builders of the temple reject him. They, they don't see him as quite right. They perhaps they don't have the right shape or the right form or the right color. And so he's set aside. But he becomes the chief cornerstone. It's one of the reasons that Israel is rejected. They reject the stone provided by God in Christ, his son. Israel has rejected him, but he is the true temple as the elect of God. God chooses the stones that he wishes to use. He's the one who accepts and rejects. Well, we spoke momentarily about safety and being on the true vine. Christ is the true vine. I'll speak now about the reverse of this construction metaphor of safety and of the true temple of God. If you're not in the temple provided by God for your worship, your worship is unauthorized and totally unsafe. But more importantly, it's rejected by God. When the Lord of the vineyard shows up, he rejects bad fruit. When the Lord of the temple shows up, he will reject all unauthorized worship, which is outside of his provision in Jesus Christ. There's a reminder of this in a passage that we've looked at already. Instructions to the nations uh, as they go into the land, Deuteronomy 32 and the 18th verse. You neglected the rock who begot you and forgot the God who gave you birth. This is simply the way of man. Yeah, God, you've got your choice, but I've got mine. I'll try mine for a season. It'll work. No, it transforms you, totally makes you over. And then God shows up. The answer to the great construction metaphor is, of course, Christ. The psalmist is not only fulfilled in Christ, but it's also fulfilled in the church. It's exactly the point of the Apostle Peter in his first epistle. Again, he's taking Psalm 118 and realizing it in Christ, and then he does something remarkable. He has its realization also in the church. The true church, the only authorized church, place of worship, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4, and coming to him as to a living stone rejected by men, but choice and precious in the sight of God. Again, that Christ is the living stone. He is the end time temple that is dynamically filling the earth. But notice Peter does something of which I've already suggested and hinted. He transitions from the singular Christ to the plural, the church. Verse 5, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. And then he mixes metaphors again for a holy priesthood. That the church, the true church is the end time temple that's going to fill the earth and manifest the glory of God. And Christ is the cornerstone. But if you're a Christian, you are being added to him as the end time temple and you are alive and your worship is alive and therefore acceptable to God because you are in his son. This same metaphor is picked up by the Apostle Paul 
Ephesians chapter 2. Again, it's a construction metaphor. Having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. It's remarkable when you look at the two controlling metaphors that in Christ we produce luscious fruit for the glory of God. In Christ you are part of the end time temple where God lives and God dwells and therefore you are safe because where God lives and dwells his people are safe. Something is I think of the reality of uh, the great confession of the apostle Peter. Who do you say that I am Peter? Thou art the Christ the son of the living God. Jesus says, Peter, you're the rock, and upon this rock I'll build my church. A couple of different ways to interpret that text, but one very popular way is that, Peter, upon your confession, I'll build my church. What confession? That you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. You build your life upon that. You're being added to the end-time temple where God lives and God dwells and where there's eternal safety. If this building and this confession will stand the judgment of God, Reminded that this is one of the great texts used by the author of the book of Hebrews, speaking of the safety that's uh, given to all who are in Christ. Hebrews chapter 7, 25th verse, hence also, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, for he always lives to make intercession for them. Much of the American church today, regardless of the denominational affiliation, believes you can come to Christ, but then at some point you simply give it up and fall away. I would say you have a problem with the author of the book of Hebrews. When God saves in Christ, he saves forever. Not much in life is forever. But one thing for sure is, Christ is. And when you are united to him, you are safe forever. Jesus says, John chapter 6, of all that the Father has given me, I lose none. Incredible. I lose most everything that's given to me. I lose my keys. I lose my money. I walk around the house in darkness. Darling, where are my keys? Darling, where's this? Where's that? Think of it in the hands of the majestic God. You are never lost. There's not a moment of any waking day of which you can fall away from the greatness of God because you are wedded to him through the work and the perfections of Jesus Christ. My friend, that is a place to be, or rather a person to be. Continuing the rock metaphor, verses 43 to 46, the nation misses the danger of what it means to reject Christ. The danger of what it means to reject Christ. Coming back again to Matthew chapter 21, uh, going to read uh, verses 43 and 44. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. Physical Israel, ethnic Israel, it's removed and be given to a nation producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but whomever it falls will scatter him like dust. Uh, the text, uh, again, is an allusion to our final Old Testament uh, text, uh, second chapter of the book of Daniel. 
Daniel chapter 2. The context is the prophet has a dream. But the dream and the interpretation are at verse 34 to 35. The text has reference to a dream, pardon me. Let's look at the dream proper. Verses 34 and 35, Daniel chapter 2. You continued looking till a stone was cut without hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floor. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. The interpretation is at verses 44 to 45. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all the kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future, so the dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. The context, again, is of evil governments persecuting the people of God. God will take a divine stone, hence the reference made without hands, and use it to crush the idolatrous enemy. By the way, there's biting irony here that really is inescapable. Jesus, inciting this text, is saying that the Israel, contemporary Israel of his day, has become like the idolaters of Daniel chapter 2. By citing the text, Jesus has the prophecy is beginning to be fulfilled ultimately in him. Therefore, Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of Daniel chapter 2. He's the stone cut without hands. It's going to crush everything that gets in its way, pulverize it, so that the wind will come and blow it away like so much chaff on the threshing floor. Whatever, whoever opposes him or his people will be crushed and pulverized. The fulfillment is now, and yet it's not yet. If you stumble over Christ in the sense that you don't like him, you trip and fall, uh, you're going to break. It's a great modern accoutrement and safety uh, used for home use today, uh, principally for the elderly. They have these devices that they can buy that help them uh, to remain ambulatory and keep them from falling. Neat little braking system, neat little seat. Uh, those of you who knew my mother when she came to church here, you saw one. Maybe you don't remember, but again, she was not very ambulatory, and she used this walker. It was great. You want to walk without falling spiritually. Come to Christ. You'll never stumble. Never slip, never fall. On the other hand, if you reject his provision, God will fall and smash everything not in him. Being fulfilled even as we speak, I think in much of the church where there's a leanness of the soul, God has his word and we have ours. God has his definitions and we have ours. We like ours better than his. By the way, that's called idolatry. God will smash every idol, whether it's made out of gold or silver or bronze or steel or brass, or a mud figure, God will destroy it. So think of the two controlling metaphors of the text. They speak to cursing and judgment. You want to be fruitful, come to Christ. You'll be fruitful. 
You want to be a part of the end time temple? Come to Christ. He's the cornerstone. You're being built as living stones upon the great God and the provision of his son. The great storms of life will come. One temple and one only will withstand the judgments to come. There's only one authorized place of worship, and that is Christ. If you're not a Christian, it goes without saying that these words are for you, but they're for all of us to refine our faith, to speak to us of the majesty of Christ as our vine, choice vine, that in him we will bear fruit and that fruit will remain. The majesty of Christ is the cornerstone that we are made alive and built upon him. As he withstood the judgments of the cross, we will withstand the judgments of God because we are in him, made safe. I love the hymn, Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me, was written by a man walking in the Lake District of England and a great horrific storm fell and broke. He ran through a cluster of rocks, found safety, wrote that hymn. So the true vine and the divinely accepted stone are the appointed places of eternal safety, that you are only safe in him and not from him. But if you are in him, you are safe forever because he saves forever those who draw near to him through Jesus Christ.